things. There's special moments for us to participate in. Um, so we're going to switch gears and we're going to open up our Bibles for a little bit. Um, we're going to be all over in it. And if you need somewhere to turn because you're like, I need to do that sort of thing, go to 1 John 3, verse 1. Uh, but we're going to be talking about our last identity that we've been processing through. We've talked through uh, three so far and we're going to be on our fourth one. Uh, but before we jump in there, we're going to start with a little survey. And uh, we're going to be getting to Jesus, I promise you, we'll get to the good news, we'll get to the kingdom, we'll get to our identities, we'll get to all those fun things, but first we're going to start with TV, because some of us might know that better than our Bible, and so we're a little bit more comfortable talking about it. Just kidding, right? That's not true. No, not at all. Um, here's the question, if, church, if the church was a TV family, which one would it be? What? It's not where I saw this going. You just had me open my Bible, and now you're into... So think for a second. You're going to turn to those smaller groups and think through this. There is a plethora of options for this one, uh, but this last part uh, will be great. Why? So if it was a TV family, and everybody know what that is? A family that's portrayed on TV. How many of you guys have ever watched TV? Awesome. We can do this. All of us can do this. Um, is there a family on TV that you think the church represents the church. Uh, and it can be how it should be, or it can be as it, I'm leaving that open to interpretation. Whatever comes to mind, I want to let you guys process this. Uh, kids, make sure you let your parents talk to, because they like TV. It's hard to believe. They just do it after you go to bed, uh, but they like it as well, so they've got some thoughts. But turn towards each other. Uh, what would it be? If the church was a TV family, which one would it be and why? And part of me knows I probably shouldn't do this, but uh, I really want to. Um, What'd you come up with if you're over? So kids, you got to answer all the joy questions. This is for the grown-ups. I want to hear their answers for this one. If you want to tell me when you hand me in your sheet later on what your answer was, I will full-on listen then. But I would love to hear uh, grown-ups' thoughts. What did you think? If the church was a TV family, which one would it be and why? Nick, your hand's up. Is that up? Okay. So Despicable Me, like uh, you have Gru, and then he eventually adopts the three girls. So like this... It's like father adopting kids. Oh, man. Um, you know, they're kind oh, of misfits. Come on, who's next? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, challenge accepted. Okay, there was a head nod involved in that one. Another uh, <laughs> kid-friendly one, or uh, everybody's seen it. So Phineas and Ferb, they create these amazing creations. They're like leaning in to the, the not yet. They're in that new creation. They're imagining what could be. But then the, the tornado comes or something, and so it's taken away. And so they're like constantly in that this is what's coming, but we're not quite there yet. Mm. There you go. Mm. What do we got? Middle section. Stare me down like you don't want to say what it was. You don't want to say you came up with. You were talking a lot. Anybody ever here? I said the Goldbergs. I don't know if anyone has seen it. <clears throat> They hurt each other's feelings and make a mess of everything. And then by the end of it, there's usually a good heartfelt apology and some redemption kind of coming full circle. But man, they're a mess. <laughs> Love it. Go ahead. As a joke, I said the Flanders family from The Simpsons. Dead Flanders. <laughs> as, a, as a joke. I mean, I, I didn't mean that. That's the only Christian family I could think of. That's part of the problem. Um, 
uh, ask that question, one, because we're going to be talking about the fact that our identity is as family. And so the, the broad spectrum of what that could mean is anything from literally the Flanders family to the Family Guy family over to like Gru and Phineas and Ferb. Like the, our family experiences are much uh, more painful to talk about. And so rather than talk about ours, we were talking about TV ones to realize when we say family, uh, we are family. That's packed with a bunch of different language and imagery for each and every one of us. And I don't say that lightly. I say that knowing that uh, some of us come and we load things into that are meant to be there. Others have things that aren't meant to be there. Other of us have no idea what a family that looked good actually even would be. And so we project and imagine and try figuring it out. And and here's the deal. We're going to be figuring some of that out for the rest of our journey until we experience in the new creation, the perfect love of the Father in the space that we're in and experience that in a different way. And so we might be pressing in, learning, but we get glimpses of that now. Uh, We get to taste that now. And this is one of the key identities that God gives us when it comes to how do we live together in his world, in this place, as a family. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, Leslie Newbegin asserts that the only hermeneutic, and don't get lost in this word, we'll get there, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women and kids who believe it and live by it. What that means is that the only way that the gospel actually makes sense to people is when a community of people embody the realities of the good news that it announces. Uh, We're seeing that we're sent as missionaries, that is, good news ambassadors wherever we go. Chris Preby taught us that, that we have received the good news and that have been sent out to announce and embody that wherever we go in the world. Uh, We've seen that we're also servants like Jesus who take up that role of wrapping a towel around our waist and lovingly tending to the wounds and the dirt and the mess of others, expecting nothing in return because that's what God's done for us. And then we've seen that we're disciples or learners that we're not the, the leaders of this thing. But we are marked as followers of Jesus who are learning to live like he did, see the world the way he did, and love the way that he did. And fundamentally, when we start to follow Jesus, it's never as a random group of individuals, but it's as a community, a family, by its very fabric. The Bible casts a very beautiful vision of what this can look like. Uh, so much greater than we even get a taste of in the best cartoon or see a vision of in the worst sitcom. But God has a vision and invites us into that. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through this for a few minutes and then see what exactly it looks like for us to grow in this. So would you guys pray with me one more time? Jesus, uh, you, you invited us to pray our Father. And so we line up side by side with you right now, and pray, our Father, who is in heaven, would you hear our prayers? Would you allow our hearts to have some undistracted space to hear from you? Uh, Would our eyes be open to the beauty of Scripture? And would we together learn to live as sisters and brothers in the way that you've invited us? Uh, Not because we have to or we're obligated to, but because our hearts want to because we've experienced the love that you have for us. We ask this in your name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.
Amen. I'm going to have, uh, just so you guys know, look at three things coming up. There's going to be three parts to this that come with our identity as family. And so I've often taught this. Uh, I've been teaching this for the last 12 years. It's a reality that has been true and shaping for us together as a community. Uh, it's, it's part of why we do things the way we do, why we don't just say, hey, let's just see you on Sunday and then it'll be good the rest of the week. But we look to overlap more and more of life together because we think that God wants to shape us and shape the place we live in by being in a community. A God himself is a community, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And by nature, he created humans the same way. And so human beings at the beginning were set in a garden together, man and women, to cultivate all the hidden potentials of God's creation, to have little image bearers that went out from there that would kind of go out in uh, concentric circles, cultivating the earth, cultivating the earth, cultivating the earth, and reflecting the image of God. And it would have been a beautiful picture of family. But the very first parents chose their own self over those that would come. And forever families have been marked with that stain since then. And none of us are the exception. But what God does is that he redeems that language. He brings back the language to say, hey, here's what's true, that I am your God. I am the true father. And so he uses the language of adoption all throughout scripture. And so uh, just for us to see that starting with Adam, uh, Luke calls Adam the son of God. Uh, He's going through his genealogy of all the whose parents, whose parents, whose parents, and he gets to Adam, and Adam didn't have like, biological parents. So he's like, Adam, the son of God. This idea that Adam was created as God's own heir, the one who was his own literally breath, sent out to embody God's ways in the world. And then Adam fails at that, right? And then we know that God calls another nation, Israel, through Abram. And so he says, Abram, out of you I'm going to make a great nation. And then that nation was sent out to be a blessing to the world. And God says this when he's sending Moses. He says to Moses, uh, he's like, when he's going to go into Pharaoh, do you guys remember that story? He's going to go into Pharaoh to say, hey, Pharaoh, you should let all your workforce go. Um, God says that you should, and that's what you're going to do. And Moses is like, bro, why would I ever do that, right? He's talking to the burning bush saying, whoa, 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 not me, not me, not me. And in Exodus 3, God tells him to say, hey, go ahead and tell him this. Say, Israel's my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. That is how serious God was about Israel being his firstborn son. And the nations always talked about in this language of being a child of God. And then we get to Jesus, right? So as we're tracking along in the story, we get to Jesus, that story of redemption. And we see that as he comes out of the water, do you guys remember? Jesus comes and gets baptized by his cousin John, crazy man out in the woods, and he he throws Jesus under the water. And when he pulls Jesus out of the water, do you remember what happens next? The skies open up, right? And the spirit of God descends like a dove. And there's a voice that comes out. And what does it say? This is my son whom I'm well pleased in. Listen to what he says, is what it says in Mark. And you're like, that is a super cool word study, Kevin. Thanks for that. But here's what I need us to see, that that same language is picked up on for us as the church. That that Paul, very clear, uh, Jesus, starting with Jesus, would say, hey, um, right after he's resurrected, he comes back to the garden, John 20. He's in the garden with Mary, right? And Mary's like, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad to see you. And she's hugging him. And he's like, oh, hold on. I got to go to ascend to my father and to your father. 
extending that out. Throughout his ministry, he always talked about, how do we pray? We pray, our Father who art in heaven. Wait a second, God can be my Father? This is kind of different. And then he extends that in the resurrection to it. says, hey, I'm going to go to my God and your God. This is my Father and your Father. And then we get into the epistles, and those writers pick this thread up strongly because some people might think that it was just the Jewish nation that were children of God, but Paul is very clear in Galatians to say, no, 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 no. God has justified, adopted, brought into his family both Jews and Gentiles, anybody who gives their allegiance to Jesus who bows their knee to the true and living God, is brought in. They're not slaves, but they're sons. And by that, we can say sons and daughters. That was a word used just broadly for humans. And so if you're reading your Bible, and you're like, man, it talks a lot about sons. What about this whole daughter? Do I have a place in this? Uh, yes, absolutely, without a doubt. That's what I love that he talks to Mary in John 20 when he says our father. But going on. This is what God's people have always been, called in, rescued, adopted, brought into a family as full heirs. Uh, 1 John 3 is where I said you should turn to, and I, won't, um, and I want us to go there because it's a beautiful passage. Uh, 1 John 3, when we were reading through it, it was one of the ones that stuck out to me. First John 3, verse 1. Uh, John, if you remember, was writing to a church to tell them about how the good news was shaping all of their life and all of their relationships. And he says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Uh, family, hear this first and foremost. We cannot miss this, that God has adopted us into his family as dearly loved children. He did not conscript us as servants or slaves to do what he didn't want to do himself. But he calls together the church, this community of people who are empowered by the spirit, who give their allegiance to Jesus to be his sons and daughters, full heirs of all that he has to offer. A new creation to come will be given to all his children. And the beautiful part about this is the initiating fact of this is God's great love. When it comes to adoption, it was not tryouts. It was not the Hunger Games. There was not some sort of a lottery system where if you pulled the right number, then he might like you enough and then he might give you in, right? See what great love the Father has lavished on us. This starts with God and his love. If Christianity, if your Christianity starts anywhere other than God's love, it's probably a different Christianity than what this book teaches. Because God in the initiating love comes after and lavishes his love and makes them children of his it's by grace, not effort. Uh, we, as you guys have know, have adopted three kids. And at no point did Kaylee Ann and I, and we're imperfect parents, at no point did we say, all right, let's see how this works out and have like a kind of a criteria and some, uh, you know, some good old little regiments to do. And like, what can you do? You, what, let's have some tryouts. Let's see what works here. No, right? We pursued and loved and chose to adopt children. And that there's so much beauty in the fact that that's the imagery that God uses 
selection, intentionality, a willful desire. Uh, when we went and we were signing off on the adoption papers, one of the questions they ask you is, do you give rights to this child as a natural born heir? Which I was like, man, you guys are like ripping language out of the Bible here for this. But the idea that would you love any, this child as you would a natural born one? Absolutely. In God's economy, he loves us with the same exact love that he had for Jesus. Let that melt your heart. Let that realization sink deep that the truest thing about you is that you're deeply loved by God. Not having to prove yourself, not having to earn it, not having to figure it out and make yourself valuable in his eyes. But he saw you as valuable and he loved you before you had done anything. This is redemptive love. In Galatians 4, I commented on it before, it says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons or children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This cannot be overstated. The reality that God is a new father, not a new taskmaster. Slaves live from fear. They try to impress. They work for the boss. And they're always waiting to see what will happen next. Are they going to be able to maintain a place of honor? Children are so much different. They live from favor. They curl up on their dad's lap. They're not trying to impress. They work with the parent, not for the parent. And they trust the parent. Um, attachment and the love of God is an entire sermon and probably lifetime pursuit in and of itself. And so we don't have time to fully unpack that, but the trust that develops between humans and God is something that I think we do need to press more into. And to realize that the more that we're able to see God as a perfect father who will never fail, who is always there, always reliable, will never let us go, does not look at us with glaring eyes, making us prove ourselves, but welcomes us back to himself anytime we turn and is trustworthy to do all that he said he would do, whether we're five, 50, or 90, is something that we're always gonna be growing in our awareness of. And so hearing this good news that we're welcome to the table as a child, not as a servant who might have to sneak in. And in all the times I've taught this, that's usually where I stop. Like legit, like that is really good news uh, that we get welcomed into the family of God, fully adopted heirs. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove it. We, don't, we just get to walk in because of Jesus and God loves us and lavishes love on us and gives us the heir, right? The full keys to the kingdom, literally new creation to come. It's a deposit for that we will get to be a part of that. That is ridiculously good news. And so we could just be like, man, that, that's good. Let's walk away. But I think in all the times that I've done that, and I can apologize here, I've missed out on a few dimensions that need to be pulled out for us because it's what we experience in life, but we haven't talked about it. And so uh, we're adopted by God, and here's the next piece, as sisters and brothers. As sisters and brothers. And I know this might seem implicit, but I want to make it explicit. That we're now in responsible relationships with other believers. 
And this is going to grate against our Western sensibilities. Like, we love our independence, and we want to believe, I follow Jesus, and then I decide what's best for my life from there, with God's help a little bit, right? But God forbid another person wants to speak into that, or let alone a whole community of people, or let alone, like, I'm responsible now to you guys for how I live my life because it impacts you and influences you. That is 100% true when you get into the family of God. And you're like, well, dang, I didn't know that. Can I back up a little bit? But I think when the beauty of the love of God melts our heart, it also makes us want to live as sisters and brothers in a way that's brand new. When we're following Jesus, Jesus didn't just change our vertical status, our relationship with him, but our horizontal status as well, that we're in relationship, brand new kinds with each other. And Jesus uh, brings you into a multi-ethnic, many different political views, different socioeconomic levels, different preferences, different backgrounds, different ideas and ideals, and says, great, now you guys all get to live it out together because I'm your dad and we're going to figure this out. So that's where maybe the Goldberg example looks really, really close because it isn't easy. It is tough, and we are responsible. And Jesus wasn't, like, shy about saying this. If you guys remember in your Bibles, um, there's this scene in Mark uh, when they come and they go to Jesus, and Jesus is inside, and he's teaching, and outside are Jesus' brothers and his brothers and his mom, and they come in, and they're like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are looking for you, which would have been, like, a really important thing for him to be like, oh, I should honor them, and I should go to them, because your family, your brothers and your sisters were the closest relationships that you had in a Mediterranean world. Like, that was your people. That was your tribe, literally. And Jesus gives the answer. He says, who's my mother and brother? And they're like, duh, the guy, uh, people standing outside like we just said. Like, you just heard us, right? Did you not hear us? And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He was redefining what the family relationships look like in the kingdom of God. And he wasn't doing it where a lot of times we want to be like, yeah, but he didn't really mean that. Like, did he? It's not the only time when he says it. And then the, the, the church early on, they start to practice that way. Like they heard Jesus' words, Peter, John, James, right? They heard Jesus' word, and then how do they live? Take the snapshots from the book of Acts. When they saw somebody in need, they sold their stuff and they gave it to them. When you hear about the kind of lives they were living, there was this deep-rooted affinity for each other. They gave of themselves, literally their hearts, right? Their affections, like something new was forming where these people now had preference in their life. It's easy for us to assume uh, that my dream, my goals, and my personal fulfillment take the precedence over any community. That's how we're raised. That's the water we drink. That's the air that we breathe in America is that you as an individual, me as an individual, that's what matters most when you realize what was assumed in the world that Jesus was talking to was actually that the community comes first, and he was just telling which community they were supposed to switch to with that priority. We're two steps removed from that, and so maybe I have to spend a little bit more time sitting with it. The early churches lived this out. They shared affections. Uh, Paul often wrote, brothers and sisters, I long to be with you. They shared their stuff. 
Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, Acts says, and no one said that they, any of their possessions were their own, but instead they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because of those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This idea that they now saw somebody else's needs as a need of their own because they were a new family, because God was their father and it made them sisters and brothers. And this is something for us to continue to flesh out as we look at this, but what does this mean for us? I think there's at least the response that, well, we need to share our stuff probably. That seems pretty clear as you look at the Bible. Uh, sharing our affections or our heart and actually growing in love of each other. And then there's a, a really big one that Paul goes in on, and I'm just going to comment on it, but it needs to be, I think, continue to be unpacked for us. But it's this, that I think we need to stay, embrace some of the pain of relationships, and grow up with one another. The early church didn't have an option to hop across the street to find the one that had the preacher they liked more, right? They didn't have the option to say, well, I don't really like what that guy's preaching about whole whole die-to-yourself thing. Let me go over here to this other place where I just really like the music. Or like, this place has got like really good AC, so I'll go there in the summer. And this place has really good heat, so I'll go there in the winter. Like, they didn't have those options. They said, man, there's like seven people in my whole entire city that love Jesus. We're going to get together and we're going to figure this out. And it was always messy. If you read through the epistles and take off your rose-colored glasses, you realize that each and every one of those churches that Paul planted was a hot mess. Because people were figuring out, what does it look like for us to live as sisters and brothers? In churches, the, the kind of heartache, hurt, and frustration are real. We feel those. Uh, one of the dangers of talking about the church's family is that we idealize the concept of the church and fail to embrace the reality that doing family right is tough stuff, both at church and at our homes. It was difficult for Paul. It's going to be difficult for us. But it's a worthwhile work. Uh, one author commented that it is long-term interpersonal relationships that are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. That is, that is the place where God is going to do most of the work he wants to do in you is as you're in community with others. Across a spectrum that's broad, but with a singular savior and a singular mission. So we're adopted by God into responsible relationships as brothers and sisters. And then the last piece, for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. Uh, Israel, at no point in the story was the people that God called to himself ever to exist for their own well-being alone. It never happens. Adam and Eve, literally entire creation. Abram with Israel, go and be a light to the nations. Jesus, literally, savior of the world, calls the church and then sends us out to live our lives as a family for the sake of the world. That means that as we live as a family, our neighborhoods, our families, our cities, right, this nation, the pockets where there are believers should be blessed because there's a family, a community of Jesus followers there. And that's what we set out and that's what we want to do together as a church. That's our goal, right? We want to commit together to living as sons and daughters of God 
as brothers and sisters in this place for the sake of Mesa and beyond. And it's the degrees that we're going to live that out into. None of us nail that perfectly every time, all the ways. But that is a lot of information, and I know that. I'll post the notes so that you can reread through them. But here's what I'd love you to do, is just take a moment to center in on a thought. And so first question or the second one, choose the one that you want to answer. What resonates and makes you bang the table? Like you're like, yes, I love that. You know when you get excited and you just slam on the table and you're like, yep, 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 okay? Or what convicted you and makes you want to flinch and pull away from the table? Like when you said it's going to hurt, I kind of want to pull away. Like Nick talked about, when somebody that you love and trust and you're, you're living gospel relationships with turns and weaponizes that against you, that's enough to make you be like off switch, knew this wasn't worth it, and now I'm out. I think a lot of us have felt those moments. That's what I love about your courage, just to share that story even. But maybe identify one thing, and then I'm going to have you turn back to those groups that you were just with. And you can be in process. It doesn't have to be the final thought, but just one thought. What convicted you or what excites you about this and makes you bang the table? Everybody might not get to share, and then I'm going to invite us to actually go to the Lord's table. So go ahead and turn towards each other, and I'll pull you back.